about the Western esoteric tradition. My name is Rudolf, I am your host, and I'm happy to have you as my guests for episode 2, coming to you on May the 4th, 2017. Before we delve into this episode, I have to tell you that I was very happy with the response to our launch two weeks ago. Close to 600 have to this day downloaded episode 1 from 31 countries and 34 US states. A very nice number for a first, I think. And many of you were so kind to send nice and encouraging feedback about what they heard. I will read a few to you a bit later into this episode. So, if you are new to this show, and if you like it, you may want to go on the website or to your podcast provider and also listen to episode one. We are available on www.sourcehermes.com, but also on iTunes, Android, Spreaker, Stitcher and Blueberry. Our featured interview partner in this episode is Canadian author, transpersonal psychologist and esotericist P.T. Mistelberger. I had a very interesting talk with him and hope you will enjoy. Today's featured music comes to us from Germany. I'm presenting to you three titles by the medieval folk rock band Corvus Corax, which of course means Black Raven. They have developed a very special sound and I am sure this is a nice discovery for those among you who don't know them yet. You will find some information and all necessary links on our homepage. Once again, it is www.thoughthermes.com. There is also a new feature that I can present to you for the first time in this episode. In our new section, I will be happy to present to you two interesting websites and announce a publication of a new book that I'm sure could be of interest to many. So stay tuned after the main interview, which again will last for about one hour in two parts. During the break, 
I will play some music to you. And now, some feedback. As I just said, I had many listeners coming back to me, and I'm happy to say that so far, all of them seem to be rather happy with episode one. I'm not going to annoy you with too much of praise, but maybe just two or three. There is a nice message from Aisha from Los Angeles. I loved this podcast. I very much appreciated this invitation into Alan's personal perspective and now like Wendy's music, new to me, very much and would like to introduce it to some of my friends as well. I'm very excited for future episodes and thank you. Well, thank you, Aisha, and I'm so glad that also the idea about the music has been a success. Happy for Wendy, but also hoping that you all will continue to find out about great artists in the future episodes. There will be four different types of tastes, for sure, and I'm quite confident there is always something to discover. Benjamin wrote to us from Missouri. I greatly enjoyed this opening episode, and especially for us younger esoteric seekers, Alan's perspective and grasp of history was very rewarding. I will say that I think he's right on about American esotericism and mysticism. We do tend to be more intellectual, even somewhat scientific, in our approach, though obviously there are always exceptions. Definitely looking forward to the next episode when it comes out. My only suggestion is to maybe look at the volume balancing. Alan's voice came through much louder than yours did, which can be off-putting. Other than that, though, it was very much worth the listen. Well, thanks, Benjamin, for all of that, and especially for the hint about the volume of my voice. I have to fiddle around a bit with that. I'm not sure it's already solved this time, but I'm definitely working on it. And last but not least, I have to read to you what one of my favorite occultists and magicians of our time, the great Josephine McCarthy, had to say. You did a wonderful job, and very well done, particularly when it was your first. It was very professionally presented, and yet also casual enough to be a friendly and thought-provoking show to listen to. I'm so thrilled you have done this, and also really pleased to be introduced to the work of Angel Millar. Lots of things on his blog to think about, chew over and learn about. All in all, you guys have certainly added positively to the occult community. Thanks to you, Josephine. Those words mean a lot to me, and true what you're saying about Angel as well, who did the artwork and whose webpage you should all visit. So all in all, I'm quite pleased that not only the interview, but also the presentation of the artists came along so well. Please go to the website, subscribe to get the news when they come out, and continue to give me your feedback, not only praise, which I always take with pleasure, but let me also have your ideas, suggestions and proposals. Especially it would be nice to hear if you know some artist or musician 
who you think would fit into this show and who I could present. It gives us pleasure and it might help the artist. Now, before we go to the core of today's episode, let's start with a piece of music. I present to you Corvus Corax and their song La Imbeltaine. This show comes out just four days after Beltane, so a nice fit.
E. Beltin by Corvus Corax. I will tell you a bit more about the band a bit later, but... Here comes the interview. It was a very special and deep experience for me to do this interview. Not only does Phil Mistelberger have a father who comes from my country, Austria, but it was the deep insight into so many fields of the spiritual and psychological worlds that taught me an awful lot. Did you know what the porn industry had to do with the fourth and sixth chakras? Well, in a bit over an hour, if you have listened carefully, you will know. This time again, there will be a short music break in about 35 minutes in the middle of the interview. P.T. Mistelberger is our guest tonight on Thoth Hermes. Warm welcomes to Vancouver, Phil. Good evening. Thank you for your time and being with us tonight. Good evening to you, Rudolf, and happy to be here. Thank you. So, Phil, I would ask you maybe to talk first a bit about yourself, about your background, your biography, and if you could tell our listeners how you came into what you are, into transpersonal psychology, but also into dealing with the Western esoteric path. So tell us about your background. Well, I was uh, born and raised in Montreal in uh, Canada, uh, born in 1959. And Sometimes I think that growing up in the, as a child in the 1960s, the era in which we grow up in and the cultural milieu that we grow up in shapes who we are. And at that time, of course, the 1960s was an incredible cultural foment of ideas and, and uh, revolutions going on in the whole area of humanistic uh, psychology, for sure, and uh, spiritual pathways from the East becoming more well-known, let's say, in the West and North America and Western Europe. In my own case, growing up in a family that I would, you know, characterize as sort of typical in many ways, but dysfunctionally typical also in many ways, motivated me for a desire for searching. Now, initially, my interest was in science, um, in the outer universe, and I began to realize fairly quickly that that's not really what I was looking for. I was looking for something, let's say, a little deeper or a little more inwardly oriented, and I was exposed to certain writers in the mid-1970s when I was in high school, like Nietzsche, the philosopher, but also more out there uh, personalities such as Carlos Castaneda and Carl Jung in particular. And Castaneda's writings about his uh, you know, alleged apprenticeship to that famous uh, Yaki Indian personality that he described it. Uh, later on, those books were pretty much come to understood to be fabrications that he almost certainly made up, but it didn't take away from the value of the ideas and the, and the beauty of the relationship between a young seeker and an old wise man, mystic, a shaman, as he described it. And these books evoked a lot of things inside of me and led me to in other directions where I began exploring uh, Tibetan mysticism in my late teens. And then uh, around the age of 20, when I was in university and was working at my father's meatpacking plant, uh, paying my way through college, I met an interesting and somewhat strange man who was the government inspector, oddly enough, of that meatpacking plant. And he was an initiate of a secret society. I believe it was the Akankar. He started talking to me on, on one evening, you know, I was working there about uh, soul travel and out-of-body travel, and, and I was very skeptical at first, 
But I listened, and I, I remember going home that night. As I lay my head down to sleep, this shower of golden light exploded around my head, and I, f- I found myself leaving my body consciously, which was an astonishing experience for me. I, I'd had some lucid dreams prior to that by practicing Castaneda's techniques. And in his books, he uh, prescribed a certain technique for creating a lucid dream, a dream where you know you're dreaming, being to search for your hands in the dream, give yourself the command to find your hands in the dream. And I tried this for three weeks, and sure enough, uh, one dream I found my hands and realized that I was dreaming and it went from there. But these were very distinct from out-of-body experiences. My contact with the Ekankar initiate opened up some channel inside of me in which I began having a series of out-of-body experiences over the next three months, which revolutionized my perception of reality and caused me to distance from mainstream academia at that point and become you know, the proverbial seeker of esoteric truth. So I began studying what was available then. This was around 1980. I was reading Yogananda's Autobiography of a Yogi, which is full of all kinds of far-out inspirational spiritual experiences and tales, heroic tales, you could say, the spiritual. And then I discovered through the janitor of my apartment building, these things always come in the most interesting ways, the uh, personalities of Peter Ospensky and G.I. Gurdjieff. And shortly after that, I uh, read Huspensky's In Search of the Miraculous and found a Gurdjieff group and became a student of the Gurdjieff work. This was in the early 1980s. And Gurdjieff, for anyone who doesn't know, was a notorious and well-known spiritual master, half Greek, half Armenian, who died in 1949. Truly one of the most colorful, charismatic gurus of the 20th century. And his famous student, Peter Uspensky, was a Russian philosopher and mathematician who wrote uh, the famous book In Search of the Miraculous, which is one of the best books ever written detailing a, uh, an apprentice's uh, learning under a, a great uh, and powerful spiritual master. So these experiences, the out-of-body experiences, lucid dreaming, my time in the Gurdjieff work, led me to other experiences, which in turn led me to the, the radical and controversial Indian guru Osho also known as Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh. He died in 1990. He um, was very radical in many ways. He was considered a tantric master, but he was much more than just that. He was really the first Indian guru to synthesize Eastern meditation with Western therapy, Western group psychotherapy. A number of his more prominent disciples were famous Western therapists or fairly well-known Western humanistic therapists. When I got involved in that movement, I began to move more into the dimension of therapy away from the esoteric and more into transpersonal therapy and transformational therapy, which included group work as well. And so his basic formula for awakening was a combination of therapy and meditation. Now, meditation expands the mind. Therapy, you could say, works on the emotional body and clears up the residues of the past. And uh, many spiritual seekers, and certainly those in esoteric communities, both now and in the historical past, have suffered from sometimes a lack of psychological development. As Ken Wilber, you know, I believe correctly identified once, the, the well-known American philosopher Ken Wilber, he said that psychological development and spiritual development proceed along parallel tracks. So in other words, it's possible to be spiritually developed and, and relatively stunted psychologically. You can develop all kinds of yogic cities or powers or refined states of meditation you can experience and still be very unhealed with members of your family or unable to sustain intimacy or dysfunctional sexually or what have you. On the other hand, you can also be relatively adjusted psychologically, a quote unquote adjusted person and be undeveloped spiritually or let's say be not be sensitive on more refined levels. 
what I discovered was that my spiritual experiences, of which were very intense when I was younger and very profound in many ways, did not lead to any you know, appreciable psychological development inside of me. I was still inept in relationships. I had a lot of unfinished business with my family. In many ways, I felt ungrounded in the world. And so that's why I, I began to explore the dimension of transformational therapy as well and integrate it with my more esoteric understandings. And as I went along, I found out over the years and decades that these worlds are often quite disconnected. There are many people involved with esoteric teachings that have not done a whole lot of psychotherapy. And there are plenty of people that have done psychotherapy but are relatively ignorant of these spiritual and esoteric dimensions. One interesting example, you know, you could say maybe exception to that rule was Israel Regardi, who was um, Aleister Crowley's secretary when Regardi was very young. Regardi was involved in the Golden Dawn, that famous occult fraternity, and then he trained in Reichian psychotherapy after Wilhelm Reich, his ideas. And he used to directly recommend anybody interested in occult or esoteric teachings to undergo psychotherapy. And I believe he was on the mark. And this is essentially what Osho was saying, too. Long story short, I ended up dedicating my life to the the integration or the synthesis of these apparently disparate uh, realms of uh, meditation, uh, esoteric work and refinement with psychotherapy and, and group work. And so these are the realms in which I work in both as a uh, transpersonal therapist in private practice and as a writer on these matters. I also work with a lot of men. I have the, the what I call the Samurai Brotherhood, which is a, a men's group located in Vancouver, which combines some of the, let's say, virtues and qualities and philosophies of the warrior uh, archetype with the that of the conscious man. So we call it the way of the conscious warrior. I've been involved in men's work for over 25 years and also very much in, in, in relationship work and relationship processing. So there's a lot of different pieces that I work with there. Certainly not everyone is uh, interested in or conversant with all these different realms of work, but I personally find it all very fascinating, and I've always enjoyed the attempt to to bring them all together. Yeah, yeah that's exactly what uh, fascinated me, if I may say that, when I read your biography online and when I found out a bit about your different books. Personally, I came first on your name when I read your book, The Inner Light. And we might come back to that in a second. But during your presentation, now uh, you mentioned a few things which I would like to pick on a little bit because I'm really fascinated and interested by that. You just mentioned Israel Rigardi and that he had said um, one should do a psychotherapy when one starts working in the Western esoteric path. And that's something I've always been very interested in, in his sayings about that also as well. Could you maybe expand a bit more on that, how you would see that personally and how you relate to that more in depth? Why do you think this would be yeah. a necessity if it is or... Is that true for everyone? Help us a bit with that. There's many pieces here, but you know, I'll just say off the bat, Rigardi had, had motivation for doing this, partly because the Golden Dawn fractured in the early 20th century for reasons when you study the history of that, that organization, the reasons seem largely to have to do with poor communication skills. You know, what modern psychology would call projection and blame, uh, members getting involved in petty uh, ego disputes with each other, and simply lacking the willingness or the communication skills to work out their issues with each other. And this leads into the second point, which is uh, ego inflation. So as you know, 
One of the ironic things about the Western esoteric tradition is it's supposed to have to do with alignment with your, let's say, higher self, or sometimes called knowledge, conversation of the holy guardian angel. There's a lot of different ways of describing it. But it's supposed to be an awakening process that leads into a recognition or realization of of yourself and your higher aspect. And yet what often happens is that the ego appropriates the work and it becomes more of an ego inflation instead of uh, working through the barriers and boundaries, unnecessary boundaries of the ego, it can become a heightening of the ego. This leads to another term, uh, which I mentioned in the book, The Inner Light, uh, antinomianism. Mm-hmm. So anti- antinomianism you know, technically means against the law. I believe it was actually originally used by Martin Luther in the, in the 16th century. Uh, but it came to, to be used over the uh, centuries and certainly more in current times as a definition of a rebelliousness of some sort. So by lawless spirituality or radical revolutionary spirituality. And often used for the left-hand path, isn't it? Yes, Mm. yes, exactly. Uh, Because the left-hand path is about discovery of higher truth through the self, as opposed to working directly towards, intentionally towards selflessness. It's more of a type of selfing. I believe it's a legitimate path, but it's more prone to being misused or appropriated by the ego. So in antinomianism, what happens is that when a seeker who is maybe not so ripe uh, emotionally or doesn't have a lot of relationship experience gets involved in esoteric teachings, it becomes a backdoor for them to reinforce the idea that they're special. They're special and therefore they cannot be fully understood by other people. Now, if you know anything about the Enneagram, the system of nine personality types, which is one of the deepest personality type systems I know of, maybe the deepest. Mm. Uh, one of the types in that system of the nine personality types, type number four, is called the tragic romantic. And the archetype of the tragic romantic is the magician. Uh, one of the main motivating impulses of that ego type is the belief that um, they are special, that they are continuously searching for the holy grail on the horizon of life, which never really shows up. And so they reinforce their belief that they're different in some way, sort of not from this planet, if you will, and some even think literally that way, through esoteric symbols. And so the esoteric language or symbols becomes armament for the ego to reinforce its idea that it is different and special. This is really more of a strengthening of ego rather than a relaxing of the more problematic parts of the ego's boundaries. The ego has a role to play, and I talk about this in The Inner Light. The ego is an ancient mechanism of self-preservation and boundaries. I sometimes liken it to a watchdog. A well-trained watchdog has a role to play, just like why, why people lock their doors or, you know, or their cars when they go out, usually, and why we wear clothes to protect ourselves from the elements and so forth. But the ego becomes a problem when that watchdog is snarling and growling at anyone who comes close to our house. Effectively, we end up isolating ourselves from the cosmos around us. And that's the shadow side of the magician. Mm. This is the dark side of the magician. Uh, It's all founded on a type of uh, specialness. And some of the extreme dark faces of it is a type of malignant narcissism uh, or what the Christian tradition called the sin of pride, why pride was always considered the, the chief sin of Lucifer, for example, because in that shadow element, it can create a lot of problems. Now, that's not to say that, again, the left-hand path has its own legitimate means of awakening. And that has to do with the, let's say, what I would describe the correct, or I'll even use the word healthy, correct or healthy reification of the individual. So the discovering of your own unique individual contribution to the universe, the signature that you have to offer to the universe, the one instrument that you're playing in the divine orchestra that nobody else can play. Yeah. 
that's the legitimate way of, of realizing oneself. And there are many people on this planet that are, are full of self-loathing and self-hatred. It's one of the most common problems that I discover in working with people, uh, self-rejection, self-loathing. And so from that point of view, the left-hand path is something to show us about correct honoring of the self. However, this is a bit of a, a fine line we, we're walking here because the correct honoring of the self can easily slip into ego inflation. Sure. This is extremely fascinating and interesting. You spoke about the Golden Dawn, but there, have, there were many of those groups in the 19th century, in the 20th century, until today, which don't live for very long. And it often yeah. seems to be that problem of ego inflation that you just mentioned, which breaks them apart, right? Yeah, the problem is is specialness. And what I have to you know, be clear on what I mean by that. You know, the way I characterize this is that uh, every human is unique, like a particular color and an infinite rainbow of infinite variations of color. Like the standard rainbow, we think of six or seven main colors. But in this metaphor, there's an infinite number of colors and we are each a unique color. Mm. And all colors are, say, sourcing from white light, you know, on the other side of the prism before it's refracted into a rainbow. The problem is when somebody just decides that their color is different or separate from other colors in a way that uh, that justifies them acting or being in a certain way. Yeah, you know, we are my color is superior to yours, or the reverse of that, which is actually more common. My color is inferior to yours, and then acting that out in all kinds of covert yeah. or indirect or resentful fashions. God made a mistake when God made me. Yeah. I, yeah. I'm, I didn't make a mistake. I'm a living, breathing, walking mistake, and therefore going through life with a type of anger or resentment towards the universe. One of my teachers once told me 30 years ago, she said, you know, you're you're really angry at God. And I said, that's nonsense. You know, I, I said, I'm really I'm really affiliated more with the Buddhist teachings where they don't even talk about a, you know, blah, 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 et cetera, et cetera. Well, I went home that night, went into meditation, and all this anger towards God just started flooding my mind. <laughs> she pushed a button on me, and she was absolutely right. Yeah. I had, uh, you know, raised in a Protestant Christian family, not particularly religious, but exposed to the Bible when I was young. I had personified God in my subconscious as this overlord that had was controlling in some way. At times, even, you know, would transfer it onto teachers or gurus I had back in the, you know, in the 1980s. People will do this in all kinds of ludicrous ways. I had a friend once who was a fellow disciple of mine of Osho, and he kept playing the lottery, and he was never winning, of course. And mm -hmm. uh, one day he got very angry, and he said, well, I guess Osho doesn't want me to win the lottery. I, I remember thinking how insane this was, that you've <laughs> actually made him that great in your mind that he controls whether you can win the lottery or not. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Interesting, yeah. But we're raised in such a way to give our power away continuously and believe that our fate is controlled by something outside of us. And this can often result in a deep-seated resentment or anger. Is it also so because that, that attitude helps us to feel as a victim more easily, which gives us all kinds of rights to blame everyone else? Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. And th that is where the, you could say, virtuous side of the left-hand path shows its face at that point, mm -hmm. in that it helps us to... It introduces us to the idea that we are responsible for the state of our mind. Now, you know, I often say there's things such as uh, New Age idiocy where, where ideas are simplified too greatly or diluted too greatly. And one of the ideas being that you create your reality, uh, which was a catchphrase in the 1980s and 90s. You don't yeah. hear it so much now, but it was huge back then, as you may recall. And people would take this in literal ways that you create everything around you. And that's not what the idea of this teaching is not that. It's that... 
your mind is interpreting data and perceptions all the time from reality, your mind is constructing a story about reality. Yeah. So you don't create the sun in the sky, but you create your experience of the sun in the sky and you create your experience of another person. And so, for example, in my conscious relationship trainings, uh, we work very directly on this idea of the story that we construct in our mind about other people. And when we construct a story in our mind about other people, it's very convincing to the point where we decide we want to be right about it. At that point, it's very difficult to connect with that person because we're now living through a story in our mind rather than the direct experience of that person. And all the wisdom traditions refer to this importance of coming back to the here and now so we can have direct experiences of things, whether it's a direct experience of a tree or a direct experience of the stars in the sky or a direct experience of another person, as opposed to these stories that we've constructed in our mind. Before we go to the different facets of your work, one more question about your background on past, because we are about yes. the same age. We grew up at around the same time and you were mentioning the Eastern philosophy and its influence on our use and the time, the 80s, the 70s. But also you ended up in your experience, if I may say so, in an interesting mixture of Western and Eastern path. How was that mixture experienced by you? Do you see it as a mixture or am I misinterpreting that? Can you talk a bit about that difference between the Western and Eastern paths? Well, there certainly are differences. I trained in at least three of the Buddhist, main Buddhist um, schools, uh, Zen Buddhism, Tibetan Buddhism, and Theravadan Buddhism to some extent, not extensively in any, any of them, but to some extent in all three, as well as some of the Advaita teachings. I was very involved in that for a while. You know, I emphasize this point in the inner light that this one of the, the main differences uh, is to grasp this point that uh, Western traditions have typically seen the issue as different from Eastern traditions. Uh, for example, in the East, um, there's no real concept around uh, evolving the world, let's say, or the or the universe. It's more about escaping from the dream of our perception of this universe. Is like getting out of the story I was talking about. Is there? It was pretty much how they define enlightenment. For example, the Buddhist term nirvana means blowing out the light of the self. It literally means extinction. People sometimes misinterpret that to mean a nihilistic extinction of being. That's not what it means. It means extinction of the false light of the ego or the mind. In the West, however, there is this idea of redeeming the universe so that as you develop and come to your own higher understanding, you're actually contributing to the evolution of the world at the same time. So it includes the dimension of time, you could say, whereas in the East, the emphasis is more on time, lessness. There's also the, the conditioning, psychological conditioning is very different. And the, for example, in India, the prime responsibility in the social settings largely towards the family. Indians tend to be very family-oriented. Uh, or in China, the prime sense of responsibility is more to the state or the nation. But in the West, uh, particularly in Western Europe and North America, it, it, the prime responsibility is mainly to the individual. Yeah. And so this is why psychotherapy developed in the West, because the ego is, you could say, more strongly developed in the West. The individual is more strongly developed. Now, some teachers such as Osho used to argue that a, a stronger ego has a better chance of becoming enlightened because they have realized their individuality to its maximum, and they can then progress naturally in a mature state to an awareness of their connection to the whole cosmos. 
That's one argument. But there are these distinct differences. What's interesting now is that the the lines are getting blurred so much. For example, the city that I live in in Vancouver is probably 45, 40%, 45% Asian people yeah. at, at this time. And a lot of these Asian people, many of them work with me, many of them are my own students, the millennial generation born after 1982, many of them don't even speak Cantonese or Mandarin, for example. They speak only English. They're just genetically Asian, but they're being raised uh, socially entirely Western fashion. Right. So there's this mixing, blurring of lines going on right now, but it's in its early stages. The conditioning still holds true in many respects. And so I emphasize this point because I've found many Western seekers over the years who tried to immerse themselves in Eastern practices and they achieved many realizations, some very profound, but oftentimes they were missing a piece and they had to come back to their roots to get that piece. Like Thich Nhat Hanh said, the famous Vietnamese Zen master, he used to say to people, go back to the tradition you were born in and try to understand it from, from the base, from the, from the roots. And so I did this partly. I completely rejected Christianity growing up and immersed myself in mostly Eastern teachings. And then uh, in my 40s, I came back to my roots and and uh, undertook a fairly lengthy study of uh, Christian history and uh, Jewish history as well, and, and even Sufism, mystical Islam. My own path, however, has always been a perennial path, one of yeah. uh, an interest in, in all the paths, and that's not necessarily the best approach for, for the average seeker. It's it, Usually it's better to stick with one path for a while so that you don't um, get too diluted, let's say. I put in years sticking with certain paths. You know, I did that time, so to speak. The age I am now, it's more of a perennialist uh, approach I have. So I adjust depending on, you know, who I'm working with. Yeah. Fascinating. Well, maybe that's the moment when we should start talking about your books. If we start with The Inner Light, you were just talking about that those different approaches or different schools you went through personally, you experienced, and you're also talking about in The Inner Light. I think it's a really fascinating book, which gives a broad overview over the Western esoteric uh, traditions, but in a completely different way than most of other books do. Well, tell us a bit more about uh, The Inner Light. I think you are the best person to talk about your book. Well, I, I often say, like, of the four books I wrote, uh, that, that one is the most difficult because it, in some ways it's, a, it's like a mini encyclopedia, like a small little encyclopedia with entries on different topics. And my, my vision for it was ambitious. I wanted to pull together a lot of different realms, such as Western philosophy and discovering how esoteric traditions have interfaced with or been influenced by Western philosophy and psychology and the history of psychology and, uh, you know, alchemy. There's a significant chapter in alchemy, which is yeah. a... That alone, I mean, we obviously could talk for an hour about alchemy. Um, <laughs> Maybe and then, one day. <laughs> yeah, but then I, you know, I was writing about the methods of modern psychology, and then I threw an appendix at the end, a section on the grimoires of low or, or you know, folk magic or what have you. For me, they speak to all different avenues of this this whole path, and I find all of them uh, fascinating. But I don't expect the average reader to a deep understanding necessarily of all the levels uh, talked about in that book. The main point that I was making throughout the book is that there's a legitimate Western esoteric tradition, but it's really in its infancy, you could say, in terms of becoming coherent or understood because because of the separate pieces like high magic alchemy, the Kabbalah, what have you, that are all work together, but need to be understood in a, in a distinct fashion. For example, if you read Gershom Scholem, who was the great Jewish Kabbalah scholar, uh, he was very negative about the idea of the Kabbalah being used uh, in Western esoteric teachings. Yeah. Most of them don't 
don't sanction that. So it's useful to read these guys and understand what they're saying, all the different pieces. And as you become comfortable with these pieces, you can you can start to understand how they all play together, what the purpose is for them. The other thing, you know, motivation I had with that book was to provide some psychological teachings for people involved in, in Western uh, esoteric teachings, like people involved in, in Western high magic, for example, to flesh out some of the understandings of modern psychology in a way that hasn't been done in too many writings, at the same time giving those who are interested in some of the more psychological aspects of alchemy a taste of the of the deeper esoteric teachings as well, mm-hmm. or what is sometimes called European shamanism. That's and an how to bring interesting denomination, yes, European shamanism, yeah. Yeah, well, the grimoire tradition is essentially a form of European shamanism in that it's very similar to it, the whole idea of shamanism is how to communicate with discarnate spirits and how to control them and uh, form relationships with them, which is the basis of the low magic in the grimoire tradition. But the psychological element of that is often overlooked, right, which is... Some modern writers on the esoteric touch on this, such as uh, Lon Milo Duquette, who uh, is an American author who's published a number of books on the Western esoteric tradition, mostly Golden Dawn-type, Ordo Templi, Orientist-type magic. And I often recommend him because he has a good sense of humor. Yeah, he doesn't take things seriously. And he has a, a pretty astute psychological grasp of, of how these things play out and how they work. For example, the idea of a magician in a circle evoking a spirit and then compelling the spirit to, to do things for it. This is very much paralleled in shadow psychology as forming a relationship with a, an element of, of your shadow. And when we form relationships with elements of our shadow, uh, essentially a type of process that I call radical acceptance, or forming this connection with this element in your shadow, say anger or something like this, it often will go out there and do things for you in the world. Yeah. Like the most powerful, successful people in the world often have a healthy relationship with their anger. Uh, you know, the ones that lose control of it become tyrants or what have you. But the healthy, actualized, powerful people in the world have an edge to them. They have a bit of a don't mess with me quality. And this is very similar to, in an esoteric idea, of a magician compelling a spirit or, or a demon, sometimes as it's characterized, to form a relationship with the magician and go and do things for the magician. The only difference is that in the old magical traditions, you get this idea of the magician sometimes berating the spirit or being very aggressive to the spirit, right? Now, in more modern approaches, we often speak in terms of embodiment or acceptance or relationship. And sometimes this is regarded as a watering down of the old tradition, but there are some virtues in it in that the shaman typically forms binding relationships with spirits that work for the shaman in a useful and productive way, but the shaman is not involved necessarily in being aggressive or hostile towards the spirit. And similarly, we don't have to be aggressive or hostile towards our shadow in order to have it work for us. There are, you know, so many pieces. I mean, alchemy as one being a tremendous system for understanding the levels of development that we go through such as the first four alone, calcination, dissolution, separation, and conjunction, chemical processes, but very useful for understanding them as processes of psychological unfolding, calcination being a term for heating or cooking that happens when we suffer in life and our subconscious material is activated, like being heated or cooked, 
leading to dissolution, which is a watering down effect, which really has to do with embodying our emotions and telling ourselves the truth about what we're actually feeling. The Buddha refers to that when he says the first noble truth is suffering or pain. And he's not saying that the world is inherently miserable. What he's saying is that you have to tell yourself the truth about the pain that is inside of you. It's very similar to an alcoholic standing up in an AA meeting and saying his name and that he's an alcoholic. So reversing denial. Uh, Dissolution is very much like that, reversing denial, feeling what's going on, which leads to the third stage, separation, which is separating elements of the psyche and seeing them clearly. So I put my anger here, I can see this clearly. Or I put my jealousy over here, I can see this clearly. I put my fear and anxiety over here, I can see it it clearly. Mm -hmm. And once these things are seen clearly, they then can be owned. We can take responsibility for them rather than saying somebody put them inside of me. Nobody put them inside of me. They're part of who I am, and now I'm taking it out and looking at it. So we are leaving the victim's role. We're we are no longer the victim, but the actor. Exactly, exactly. You're, you've now embodied the role. That's why they say a good actor owns the role. Right. You know, they was, he, he or she owned the role. They did such a, good, such a good job. It's the same thing. Can we own that part of ourselves, just like the magician owning the spirit? To own that part of, the, of yourself is the third stage separation which leads to the fourth stage conjunction. Now there's a union of these parts, they come together, or the sacred marriage. So it's often symbolized by the hermaphrodite in, in alchemy, this being yeah. that is split in two, like an angel with two colored wings. Right. It's a very common image, uh, which then leads to the higher stages. And uh, the unification, the, the conjunction, can only happen when the separation has occurred before that. And so this is paralleled by the work in psychotherapy, for example, where an integration, which is the term they use for it, integration, integration only occurs when you've become accountable for for part of your mind. This controversial American psychiatrist, M. Scott Peck, who died, I don't know, five or six years ago, he wrote a famous book around early 1980s called People of the Lie, in which he argued for a clinical definition of evil. And he, what he described was very similar to a form of malignant narcissism. And he said in his work, in his experience with working with hundreds of you know, thousands of patients over the years, he'd observed a certain type that he hadn't encountered. He didn't encounter them very often, but when they came to him, they had certain traits that he clinically wanted to define as evil. Now, that was obviously very controversial because that's a very absolute word. And he had some Christian background, which probably was influencing him. But the idea is interesting in that his definition of evil was the one who was unwilling to look in the mirror. Mm-hmm. So they were unwilling to do the separation stage, the third part. They insisted on believing that anything bad that ever happened to them was always the cause of someone else. It was always someone else's fault. So people like this can be charming and powerful in life and very persuasive and manipulative, but they don't like looking at themselves. And so they're capable of causing a lot of chaos in the world or confusion because they're so good at directing you to an outside source as as to where the problem is. Very convincing with that. Yes. And and if you look at our history, the history of warfare and the history of religious disputes and political disputes, it's usually an an outer display of that inner process of always faulting and seeing the other as an enemy. Like when Jean-Paul Sartre said his famous line, the other is hell. The other becomes hell when there is the unwillingness to look in the mirror. And when we look in the mirror, what we can see is something quite terrifying quite frightening. It was what Gurdjieff described as the terror of the situation. The terror of the situation is that we all have this hell zone inside of us. 
is really a form of self-rejection. And we're just very good at denial and projection. Either denial it's not real or projection it's someone else's fault. This is why people change relationships so often. They're always shopping for the next person that will make it all better or why they experience a, a sort of a chronic ongoing discontent in life because they haven't gotten to the core of the issue, which is their self-image. What Maxwell Maltz, who wrote Psycho-Cybernetics in the 1960s, called the self-image. The problem begins with how we see ourselves. And if we fundamentally see ourselves as negative or unlovable or unlikable, we can spend our whole lives avoiding that issue and finding others that confirm that reality that we're a negative, unlovable person because they acted out for us by treating us badly. And then we decide, aha, I'm right. See, there's never anyone who treats me well. Let's get rid of this person and go on to the next one. Yeah. But the yeah. core issue is never addressed, which is how do you feel about yourself? Right. That's, That's the realm inside. You know, in the Western esoteric tradition, they have this idea related to the tree of life and the Kabbalah of the abyss, right? Which right. is, uh, uh, you know, between the uh, sixth and seventh sephira, yeah. as I recall. And the, the abyss is not just loss of ego. The point that people often don't see is that the loss of ego can only occur when there's been a direct encountering of the ego. So you have to encounter the, the demon first before you can go beyond it. This is the part that's often conveniently overlooked. Right? That's probably what's meant in the Bible when they say that Jesus encountered the devil in the desert. It's a bit the same precisely, type of, precisely, precisely. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I often recount that very story, the 40 days and 40 nights. Exactly. Or the Buddha under the banyan tree when Mara shows up. You find that that uh, sort of divine enemy, sometimes called worthy enemy, Castaneda called it a worthy enemy, that shows up in your life and presents that opposition. And for many people, ironically, that's the romantic partner or the spouse that yeah. often turns, or, or a sibling or a parent that becomes that worthy enemy because they're the, one, they're the person that can really get under your skin because they have you in such a strong box in their mind, but you're doing the same with them, and you're only seeing the way they're holding you and not the way you're holding them. I'm not here to flatter you or your book, but just to come back one second to, to the inner light, those chapters, especially the first part, are maybe about, in my edition, about 30 pages each. So 30 pages about spiritual alchemy, about Kabbalah, etc. And I must say, I have hardly found in 30 pages about those subjects so many new facets and so many doors that opened for me after I read that. And mm -hmm. I had to go on then in other books and search for what you had said there. And I can only invite our listeners to to get that book and delve into it because it's really fascinating. And thank you for, for what you do there. And now we are going to take a break and listen again to Corvus Corax. This time it is their song Sverker, title song of their 2011 CD.
Zwerker, interpreted by Corvus Corax. Let's get back to talk further with P.T. Mistelberger about his other books and some other very interesting topics. Let's go to your other books. You mentioned four books altogether. I think the first yeah. was The Three Dangerous Magi. Is that true? That was, that was actually the second. The, second uh, the, okay. the first was a book called A Natural Awakening, and this one was self-published. Right. I actually started writing this in 1996, and it took me seven years to finish it, and I finally published it in 2005. And uh, it really focuses more on the Advaita tradition. The Advaita is sometimes regarded as the cream of the Hindu doctrine, or the yogic doctrine. Uh, the word Advaita means literally in Sanskrit, it means not two, mm-hmm. whereas it means all is one. Yeah. And uh, it's it's the purest non-dual path. At that time, I went through some satoris or enlightenment experiences in the early 2000s, which led me to leading satsang meetings for, for two years. And the Advaita tradition of that book was largely based on that, uh, combined with some modern psychology. And then I went through a, a medical situation. I had a kidney stone in 2004, I believe it was, and I had to have an operation. And when I came out of the operation, something had shifted in me, and I didn't feel enthusiasm for the Advaita path anymore. So I went back to some of my older teachings, mm-hmm. the teachings that I'd been involved in, such as um, the Gurdjieff work, process-oriented work, and, and some of the esoteric work. Then I wrote Three Dangerous Magi because of my involvement in the teachings of all three of those teachers. So just name them because our listeners might not know them. Uh, Osho, or Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh, he became Osho in the last year of his life, now known more as Osho. And then uh, Gurdjieff, the Greek-Armenian master that I mentioned before, yeah. who died in 1949. And then Aleister Crowley, who was the notorious uh, English occultist who died in 1947. And if I got any flack for that book, the most flack I got was, why was I including Crowley with Osho and Gurdjieff, who <laughs> most regarded as, although it's funny, because of, the, of those three schools, hearing from people, actually the, the most elitist and the most intolerant were from the Gurdjieff people. Really? They were very insulted that I had included their, their teacher with uh, not just Crowley, but even Osho. Some uh-huh. of them really had a very negative opinion of Osho, who was you know very controversial. The Osho people wondered why I had Crowley in there. And the only group that was fine with all three were the Crowley people. So. <laughs> That's interesting, yeah. Either could suggest that they, they're the most open-minded or that they, they figured their guy was being elevated the most. <laughs> interesting. And then there is Root Awakening, which... I must say I have not read yet, but I'm I'm going to because I the subtitle is Perils, um, Pitfalls and Hard Truths of the Spiritual Path. It sounds yeah, that, fascinating um, and probably a necessary read for most of us, isn't it? That book I published about five years ago, and it, it is actually a continuation of a natural awakening. So some people ask me, which is more evolved, root awakening or natural awakening? And I say, well, root awakening, because I wrote it when I was older, uh, (laughs) with more life experience, let's say. So a natural awakening presents the principles in their pure form. Root awakening is what happens when you try to apply those principles in this world, in the grittiness of this world. And of all my books, it's the one that I recommend the most to my clients and students and most of my clients and students who read it. It's also probably the easiest to read because it's, I mean, it's 285 pages, but it probably flows easier than the other books. I will say that I had a great deal of fun writing that one as well as Three Dangerous Magi because 
both those books address some of the darker issues of the human mind. In Rude Awakening, I don't pull any punches. It's basically a polemic or a critique of modern spiritual teachings, especially New Age teachings. So I'm poking a lot of holes in that book, and I'm intentionally critical. And I say clearly in the book, it's designed to provoke things in people. I don't claim to be any perfect white light who's embodied these teachings 100%. I don't think anybody is. That's what I conclude after all this time. I like it when the Dalai Lama was once asked a question in a talk. He was asked a question about relationships, and he hesitated. He said, perhaps you better ask someone else, because he'd never had a relationship, right? So at least he was honest, right? Yeah. So I always say to people that there is no perfect master that I'm aware of. Perhaps they exist. I certainly have not had contact with any. I've had contact with some extraordinary people and some very developed and evolved people. But that's what makes this whole thing so interesting, because we're always learning and we're always growing. And Root Awakening is largely about that. The, I'll just say briefly, the first chapter presents this idea of the difference between the idealized self and the regular self. And so when people get involved in spiritual work and meditation, they often develop an idealized self, right. who they think they are or who they think they should be. And it becomes very separate from their regular self, who is just this you know, regular person. And the danger is you can cause a split between the two, or what we call phony holy, right? Yeah. And it's important that we not do that because this leads to dissociation. So as Chogyam Trungpa once said, the famous Tibetan master, another controversial one, he said, better not start on the spiritual path. But if you start, you'd better finish because you start opening doors. Right? Yeah, yeah. And it's very hard to close those doors once you're, you've opened them. It's a master what's coming in by the door. Yes. So you got to keep going. And, and sometimes the road gets rough and you, mm -hmm. you discover things about yourself that you don't, you don't necessarily like. And you might be tempted to project it onto others, many times teachers. Teachers often get blamed for issues that the mm -hmm. disciple hasn't really worked out in their own mind. And if you look hard enough, you can find flaws in the armor. You can find thorns in the rose bush. You can find chinks in the armor. You can find problems anywhere if you look hard enough. But that's not really the point. The point is to look within. So. Yeah. Yeah. Any new books coming up? Any plans you want to talk about? Yeah. Or? I'm, uh, I'm just finishing um, my fifth book. It's called The uh, Way of the Conscious Warrior. So it's my book for men, right. uh, for my Samurai Brotherhood men and men related to that. And then I have another one I'm going to do on the conscious relationship principles. I've got all that together. I just, I just have to organize it in book form. There's others that I want to write in the future, too. I definitely have a plan to write a book on consciousness and things related to consciousness, all the elements of what consciousness is and so forth. So I will certainly be on the outlook for those. And I will put in the notes to this podcast, of course, the links to the books we just mentioned and talked about, as well to those projects you just mentioned, because the Samurai Brotherhood and Conscious Relationship is also the title of two of your three websites. Yes. And, um, well, let's talk about conscious uh, relationship workshops or first, maybe. So that's very much your workshop part of, of your work. Tell us about it. What's in it uh, for our listeners? Well, there? These, these trainings, I do them on average twice a year. I have done them in other countries, but right now I'm working pretty much exclusively in Vancouver. They usually are between 30 and 40 people in the training, and we meet, well, usually Thursday nights in this case, uh, three or four months in a row. And in the trainings, they're process-oriented work, meaning that 
the whole point is to begin to uh, see clearly, get in touch with, and share the contents of our shadow self, the parts right. of us that the part of us that is rejected. What Gurdjieff called uh, the chief feature or blind spots, as it's called sometimes in psychology. Mm-hmm. You know, like when you're driving. Certainly, you can't see over your right shoulder for most people, or left shoulder. And uh, in psychology, in relationships, very similar. There's a part of our mind that we don't see very clearly. And so, in the conscious relationship trainings, uh, it's a group format where we do various processes and practices designed to reveal, evoke, and reveal and express these parts of us that we're not comfortable with. And some people take to it very quickly. Others move into it slowly. The odd person can't do it because they're just not ready for it. There's an old saying, there's no resolution without crisis. Um, In Buddhism, you don't search for truth until you've suffered. You've been disappointed with life. And when you feel that, then you're ready to go a little deeper. So these trainings are like greenhouses in which we speed up the process Life gives us these lessons sooner or later anyway, usually through our relationships. And the idea is that in process-oriented trainings, you can see these elements of the mind more quickly and make a decision to change the patterns in one's life. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Then you just mentioned the Samurai Brotherhood, and that's something I already knew about you and saw on the internet, and which fascinated me. It's a well, to say yourself what it is, and I would also like to talk about the code of the conscious warrior, which you also write about there. Well, I was introduced to men's work in 1992, and I was hesitant at first and even skeptical because I thought, you know, I'm a seeker of non-dual truths. What do I need to do a men's group for? And I decided to try it because I trusted the man that was sponsoring me into it. Um, I, I tried it and I realized right away why I was there and what uh, I had to get out of it. Like, as Gurdjieff once said, in order to be an enlightened man, you first need to be a man. In order to be an enlightened woman, you first need to be a woman. Yeah. He, he wasn't talking about sexual orientation. He was talking about inhabiting your gender in a way that you feel comfortable, right? Mm-hmm. Just sort of similar to being in your body. And I realized my time in my men's group back in 1992, I realized all the ways in which I... I still had to grow in, in terms of embodying my masculine polarity, unfinished business with the father, with any competitive, irrational instincts you have with men or mistrust or what have you. All that stuff gets brought up in men's groups. Now, when I began running my own men's groups 20 years ago and developed my own men's community, I used the samurai tag partly because of my own training in martial arts when I was younger. I trained in right. karate and kung fu. But also because uh, I discovered over the years that many spiritual type men or seeking type men are often a little bit feminized in some ways or leaning away f- or unhealed with the father and leaning away from their masculine. Yeah. So we brought back some of the, the virtues of the warrior, the three chief virtues of the samurai being courage, loyalty, and aesthetics. So courage was boldness. The Scottish Mountaineers famous saying, boldness has genius and magic in it. Mm. Go forward in life, go forward in life and magic happens, as opposed to hiding from life. Loyalty, the second one being loyalty to a cause or commitment to a purpose. And the third one, aesthetics being creativity. And that's the image of the samurai playing his bamboo flute or Mm. writing haiku poetry. When I began this brotherhood, I thought actually of using the Knights Templar uh, as, as a Western one as perhaps being more appropriate given we were mostly Western men. Yeah. But the Knights Templar were, for the most part, were celibates, whereas sure. the samurai could marry. So 
that's why I went with that because most men are not cut out for celibacy. So, <laughs> yeah, it, the subject had, seems to have become more important, or at least more in the center of the focus of the last couple of years. Or am I wrong? Because you have been doing this for twenty odd years. You just said, has yeah. the, the necessity or the situation of men's groups changed a lot for you over those twenty years, or has it just they have been a history? They have a history. They began really in the 19, late 1960s and early 1970s. And the, the, the original men's groups actually were began as anti-patriarchal men's groups. They, were, they began as a way to help the feminist movement that was just starting at that time. And the, feminism started really in the 1800s, but then it found its footing in the early 20th century. And that's when the women's suffrage, when they got the vote. Yeah. But then it was put on the back burner during the war years. And came back again in the 1960s through the oral contraceptive pill. So women at that time could make a choice whether yep. they were going to have a career or, you know, be mothers. There, there was a men's group that formed, a men's, you know, community that formed at that time, mostly in England and uh, somewhat in the United States, that was designed to support the feminist movement. But what happened was about 10 years later, some of the men started to realize that they needed their own support as well yeah. and in some ways they were going too far in that direction of deconstructing the patriarchy and so that's when the mythopoetic men's movement was born in the roughly late 1970s early 1980s mythopoetic meaning that they started using the myths of the old times like the, like the holy grail stories or iron john the, the Grimm's brothers story of iron john iron hans as a way to promote a healthy understanding of masculinity and this reached its Pinnacle, you could say, in 1990 when Robert Bly wrote his book, Iron John, which sort of put the men's movement on the map. Uh, it had been going on for 20 years already, but it wasn't as well known. And his book became a, a New York Times bestseller. And it was controversial for one main reason, and that Bly made one main statement in that book. What he said was that there's certain things that men can only get from other men that they can't get from women. And some people didn't like that statement. They thought it was close to sexist, but that's not what his intention was. In fact, he didn't say anything negative about women in the book at all. He was just saying that younger men have lost their connection with their fathers and with the elders, their elders and their tribes. Yeah. Because the men in the, since the Industrial Revolution have been off in offices and factories, they haven't been around to raise their sons. So most boys have been raised exclusively by mothers. And so they grow up having this ambivalent relationship with the mother. On the one hand, they They, they love the female, there's a heart connection, but on the other hand, uh, they've split off from their sex. And so the, the, in yoga language, the second and fourth chakras are split. Mm -hmm. and hence the proliferation of the porn industry, because pornography is all about the second chakra with no fourth chakra, right? Sex with no heart. Okay. Um, yeah. And this is something that appeals to men because there's this split between these two centers. And so, in other words, a man tends to see a woman as, a, as an object or a body to be used for his gratification or as a goddess or mother figure to be worshipped and adored and he should never lose her approval. Mm -hmm. Lives the split life. And so the idea in healing for men is to bring those two together. How can he be a, a, a vibrant, alive, vital, sexual man and man in his heart at the same time? That's fascinating, yeah. I had not known at all that the men's movement had started like you just described it. That's completely new to me. Thank you for letting us know. Very It's been around a while. It's yeah. been around a while. The Code of the Conscious Warrior, something yeah. about this? Well, the 14-point code was something that I synthesized over a lifetime of, uh, of, of seeking and studying. And, uh, you know, it's a little bit 
wieldy. 14 points is a lot for people to remember. It's a lot easier if it's three or four, but I want it to be comprehensive. And so that's, it's, it pretty much covers all the bases. You know, there's a lot of different points in there that makes it dealing with the conscious part of warriorship. So it's not just warriorship. It's also the conscious part. And the main thing that goes on in these meetings, because we have groups and meetings in which men meet in a committed fashion uh, one night a week, is they develop a sense of brotherhood with each other that um, strengthens them in their lives. It right. makes them better, better partners to their women or their men, uh, helps them in their work lives. And one of the models we use is, I have your back. And uh, this is an important one because a lot of men are raised in such a fashion that they don't necessarily trust other men. They see other men as objects of competition that are in, in the way of what they can get in life. And for, for many men, that's because of their the lack of connection with the father. Could I also say the lack of the initiatory right, the transition from youngster to man. I mean, the old people, they had those initiatory rights at that very moment. And we transformed in the later stage into more Western, European, American rights, yeah. but they have all gone now. And there is no beginning of manhood anymore. You're, no, you're absolutely right. And one of the uh, ways this is described sometimes in modern psychology, which I think has a lot of merit to it, is that a boy, when he's growing up, is closer to his mother than his father, and so he should be for the first few years of life. That's more typical. But a certain point in time comes roughly between the ages of 6 and 12, 6 and 10, let's say, where he becomes aware that his mother is a different gender from him. She's a right. girl, and he's a boy. And at that point, he's supposed to start bonding with his father. And his father begins to teach him the ropes of manhood. So he goes through his initiation in that way. And that involves a wounding, sometimes described as a wounding or breaking away from the mother. But this is like a natural uh, process. But if the father's not present, which he often isn't, or he's, you know, he's just not present either physically or emotionally in some way because he's tired from work, then what happens is that the boy never has that bonding with the father. So he remains overly allegiant to the mother. Right. And that results in that split between the heart and the sex I was talking about, where he grows up being a mother's boy in, in so many ways and expects his woman to be a mother to him. Yeah. 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 And he doesn't know how to go out there and slay dragons. Like the father is supposed to teach him how to go out there and slay dragons and how to right. uh, develop a work ethic, not to be lazy, right? To yeah. develop a work ethic, how to be impeccable. You know, this was the Buddha's last words on his deathbed. He, you know, he was disciples were gathered around and... And uh, they said, do you have any last words for us? And according to the legends, he said, uh, work out your salvation with diligence and be a light unto yourself. In other words, be impeccable. Do your best. And this yeah. is to teach yeah. the Father, just do your best. Mm-hmm. Or even Jesus, in his last words before he died, in one of the Gospels, he, he is recorded to have said, it is accomplished. Yeah. I accomplished what I came to do. So... I describe this as solar wisdom. Solar wisdom is a masculine type wisdom that is based on on realizing accomplishments or slaying dragons. Mm. This is something that men need to develop. And if they didn't have the father to show them the steps, they can do it. They can still do it. It just takes a little more work. And that's partly what men's groups are for. Yeah. I wouldn't like to end our conversation without pointing also to your third website, because uh, you said it's the one that's least visited, which is just ptmistelberger.com, so your personal website. But I find it a fascinating source of information and of 
links to your essays, books, uh, accumulation of everything I, I have experienced with you and know about you. So I would really encourage our listeners also to go there. Uh, do you have anything special to say about that website or anything you would like to point out? Well, that, that's just where I sort of dumped all my writings over the years. So there's, uh, yes, there's a lot of small essays on there that are, are useful and can be explored. One thing I also do is I follow my enthusiasm. So I do a lot of things in life. You know, I do art and things like this. Mm. I believe in Joseph Campbell saying, follow your bliss. So follow that which makes you enthusiastic. And the, yeah. the word enthusiasm in English uh, is sometimes trivialized like a, an enthusiastic sports fan or something. But the word originally came from the Greek uh, word entheos. And entheos means full of the divine. Right. So to be an enthusiast was to be on fire for life. That's what I do. So I, I write about a lot of different things because I'm passionate that runs towards a lot of different things. And so I give myself permission to express that passion through writing or arts. Well, I couldn't agree more. Passion is something very important. Final question, because I think yeah. you are a person who is really apt to have a very important opinion about that. Esoteric work is work on your own self. We have talked a lot about that. So there is always that question about solitary work, working alone, working on those traditions for yourself, maybe mm -hmm. with a teacher, a guru, maybe not, always in a group. My personal mm -hmm. opinion is always you can only achieve the final stage alone, but sometimes there are moments when you need a group to carry yeah. you across yeah. a, a hedge, a hill or whatever. But what's your opinion on that? What's your take on that? Well, and I think they're both important. The um, uh, solitary path is important for a lot of reasons, but the community aspect is very important too. The Buddha, you know, to quote him again, he he once said, "You need three things to awaken: Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha." So Buddha is a teacher or teacher's Dharma system of understanding, and then Sangha means fellowship or community. Right. So the fellowship traditionally has always played an important role, partly because we are social creatures. We're, we're wired for social interaction, even pair bonding, you know, arguably. Most people are not naturally cut out for the, the path of uh, the solitary celibate monk, for example. It can be done, but it's not the easiest path for most people. So we have this uh, social dimension. There's also another really good saying from the book, uh, A Course in Miracles, which has some really powerful sayings. Uh, one of them is the light within you is not real until you shine it outward. Mm -hmm. And what that means is that how I interpret that is that the creation of something in a solitary state is unique and powerful, but it, it gains magnitude uh, and meaning when it is shared in right. a communal sense with others, when consciousness is shared, like you and I are sharing consciousness right now through our, our dialogue. That's when it enhances it and gains meaning. And that's what the community supplies when it's the community which you feel you can fit in comfortably with. And the, the last thing I'll just say there on that is that the other thing that's important is recognizing your contribution. So that it's not when people are part of a fellowship or, or a community, it's not just what they're receiving from the community. It's also what they have to contribute to the community. And oftentimes that's the piece missing for some people. They think that something's not working for them in this school or community or fraternity. And the thing that's missing is that they're they're not actively contributing themselves. Right. Uh, sometimes this is called in the East uh, karma yoga, the path of giving or service. And sometimes that's the piece that's missing in terms of the realization. Because when you recognize that you have something unique of value to give to a group, then you tend to feel much more at home 
in the group, just like in a, a setting of friends where you're contributing or in a family setting where your contribution is valued and recognized or in a company or what have you, when your contribution is valued and recognized. Yeah, yeah, very much so. P.T. Mistelberger, Phil, thanks so much for this moment that you spent with us here. I personally learned an awful lot of things in that hour, and I'm sure our listeners did as well. This was a fascinating tour de force around the Western Esoteric Path and your life and so many new aspects. Thanks so much. Keep us posted with your new work coming up, and thanks for joining us tonight. My pleasure, Rudolf. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Even though it was rather late for me after I had finished my talk with Phil, given the nine hours time difference between British Columbia and Austria, I had to stay up for another hour or so just to think through the many things he had to say. It might even be a good idea to listen to him a second time, I think, to hear certain things again in order to discover other aspects. We now go back to Corvus Corax and the third and last piece of music they are playing for us today. Just before, a few words who they are. They have been playing together for quite some time. The creation of the band goes back to the last years of what was then the German Democratic Republic, a state that our younger listeners don't even know about anymore. Shortly before the collapse of that communist East Germany, they fled the country, but they had to leave their pet back there, a black raven. In his honor, they gave the band the name Corvus Corax, the Latin name of the raven. Today, the critics call them the kings of the minstrels, the rolling stones of the Middle Ages, the loudest unplugged band in the world. This year's tour, called Ars Mystica, will bring them all across Germany and large parts of Europe. Now, lean back and enjoy their song Kino de Main. It starts with the line Voici le mai, le joli mois de mai, meaning here comes the lovely month of May. Isn't that a perfect fit?
Key New Domain by Corvus Corax. And now I present to you a new section in this podcast, which you will find regularly from now on in the episodes and also on the website. The news. The first thing I would like to bring to your attention is a website coming to us out of Romania. It is called occultstudy.org. That is occult-study.org. Occult Study is at the moment a website with a nice look, some good documented material of over a hundred articles on occultism, some quizzes to test your occult knowledge, some polls, a list of links, a list of suggested books, and that's about it for now. Because the founder, FVF, based in Romania, has great plans. So what it wants to become is at a different level. A free encyclopedia, but not like Wikipedia, where anyone could write. It is meant to be the source for occult study material, meaning that everything that is going to appear on this website should be written by real adepts and scholars, by some of the best authorities in their specific areas and subjects. That is the founder's dream, that the elite of occult writers and adepts are going to unite in his project to make it the best online documentation source. This is what should distinguish occult study from most of the websites. You might wonder if this is possible. Well, FVF strongly believes in this project. He already made it possible seven years ago on a smaller scale in his native language. Occult Row in Romanian. For those able to read this language, go and have a look for yourself. The link is on my website notes. It was founded by an Orthodox Christian practicing Solomonic magic and traditional Satanist. Occult Study, the new site, wants to be a space of study for everyone wanting to learn about Western esotericism and occultism. The beginning looks promising and everyone can help FVF in building his venture to become what it is meant to become, either by donating, but even more so by providing high-quality content. He is planning many other things for the website, like online video conferences and study courses. You have it. Occult study is the beginning of something different, something meant to be big. It's created with passion and love. This is very clear. Pay a visit at occult-study.org. It's definitely worth to have a look. All details and links can be found in the news section on the Thoth Hermes website. Our next piece of news concerns the release of a new long-awaited translation of a grand classic in occultism, Eliphas Levi's The Doctrine and Ritual of High Magic, and it's available now in all good bookshops on and offline 
in a brand new translation by John Mike Greer and Mark Anthony Mikituck. Livy's study of magic is an absolute must for every seeker in occult, esoteric and druidic realms, but this need has been frustrated by dated and inaccurate translations. Until now. I did not personally have the time yet to get me a copy, but I certainly will do so soon. Honestly, I don't know Mark Anthony Mikituk yet, but alone the collaboration and work of John Michael Greer to me is a guarantee of really high quality. I still have, besides his own books, his last year edition of Israel Regardless Golden Dawn account in mind, which already is a classic. The first reviews of this Levy book sound great. They speak about an admirable, elegant translation and the successful re-establishment of Livy's grand transcultural synthesis. The book is available as either a paperback or on Kindle. I think is a must for a good esoteric and occult bookshelf. Last piece of news for this edition is another website, Skeptical Occultist, spelled together but with a K at Skeptical. It's a really special treat. Eldred Wormwood, its publisher since 2014, is a book nerd and admits it. It's a very special place of book reviews, written interviews, etc. And in a couple of days, Eldred will issue the articles of the first two years in book form. I've decided to let Eldred speak for himself in a brief interview he gave me. Hello Eldred, it's my pleasure to speak to you. I've just introduced your website, The Skeptical Occultist, briefly to our listeners. And here you are. And I think you are the person actually who has to talk about that website. What brought you to build that website? What was the basic idea behind it? When it began, it was just a place to put the random thoughts and ideas that I might have that I would share with a small group of friends, particularly here in London. But over time, the site's traffic grew to a considerable amount, and I thought, why not use this platform to something to promote those whose works I find interesting and relevant to living in the contemporary world of the occult? As I dug into what is happening in the occult world online, I discovered that there's a distinct lack of anyone doing serious book reviews and covering a wide spectrum. Authors that review books tend to focus on a very specific subgenre of the occult. And I thought, why not provide a platform for a wider voice in a single place? I am, after all, a passionate book collector. It is what I've done most of my adult life. And seeking out books, both ancient dusty tomes and new books beautifully bound in leather and slipcases. These are things that fill me with a kind of delight I find hard to articulate. As the traffic to the site grew, I decided to expand the content to be a mix of both my own observations and things about my personal practice mixed with the book reviews and interviews with authors and publishers and booksellers. In addition to historic reviews of books that have maybe have forgotten, like John Deliel's 
darker superstitions of Scotland and old vegetable neurotics, a book of the chemical interactions of the common witches' herbs found from the Victorian era. In general, I try to find a balance between my bibliomania and the center that the scientists become around books and book publishing and my love of nature and wandering out of the city and into the wilderness that surrounds us and the role that that wilderness and that landscape plays in the practice of contemporary occultism. And I wanted to use the site as a way to bring a wider audience to some of the more obscure paths and ideas going on in the contemporary cult world. I think the collection of books, I mean, the, the selection of books that you are presenting there is very interesting. We have Richard Gavin's The Benighted Pass, which I think is a great book, or Jake Stratton Kent, Peter Gray, Thomas Vincente, to name just a few. How do you select what catches your eye? What will you like to bring on that website? I am rather particular about the books that I'll review on The Skeptical Occultist. I have a stipulation that each book that is reviewed be released as a hardbound edition. And though this may seem a bit elitist, this requirement of a hardbound, I find that publishers that release hardbounds are more likely to treat their authors with respect and be doing the work because of the love of the occult and the esoteric, and not just as a business platform. And those publishers tend to work with authors who are serious in their undertaking, both as practitioners and as writers. One you can come to depend on, that though you may not know the author's name, he may be something fresh to you, on the other hand, you know the publisher and you know that they can trust that they are providing you with something that gives you insight into a certain practice or praxis. And is that the reason why I also saw the news on your website? Well, you might want to give those news yourself about a book coming out. But the idea of doing a print edition of The Skeptical Occultist is merely based in my own bibliomania and my own desire to own books. I mean, those that assess about this physical thing, this object, these are the people who are my readers. And I know that they would like to own the physical object, to have it, to read, to thumb through, to look at again and again. It's not the same as a screen, and we all know that. So I thought to myself, now that there's enough time and posts that have accumulated in the past, I would put out an issue. The first issue covers 2014 and 2015, and the second issue that will come out in midsummer, sometime at the end of June, will cover the, all of the year 2016 and those posts. In the beginning, we'll have them available as a full-color trade paperback, and then sometime after the second issue comes out, I'd like to sit down and really put some serious thought into a fine binding edition of both of them. Well, I think that it's a really great idea. That's what's also brought me to call you and speak to you here today. And we are really looking forward to that. And listeners will be able to get the link on my website in the show notes so they can find uh, your website and also the order information for that book very easily. You also did interviews lately on that website, right? The interview series started with Richard Bishop, the American bookseller and seminal guitarist, who just happens to be one of the great booksellers in American occultism. His keen eye and ability to travel around the world looking and digging through stacks of old bookshops has given him an incredible selection of fine bindings and rarities that he's always touting. The man is practically bankrupting me. <laughs> 
The most recent interview has been with Carl Abrahamson, occultist and publisher, the head of publishing in Trampart. He publishes The Friendless Wolf, the issue nine. It was just released recently, and it's a wonderful collection of papers from a conference that he oversaw and curated. The beginning of Carl's interview started at Bibliotheca Cultorum, a interview selection with those who have private libraries, occult libraries around the world. I, I realized that at some point there are these beautiful and wonderful libraries hidden away in private hands full of rare occult tombs and manuscripts and fine bindings. And I thought, why not drag some of these hermit collectors out into the world and make them talk about what they have and you know all the things that they fill their vast libraries with and keep to themselves like some smog on a pile of gold. So I'm hoping over the next couple of years to expose some of these private libraries to the world and give a little peep into these secret treasures hidden away in the houses across Europe and America. Well, that sounds like a fascinating idea. Yeah, it's certainly true. There are many nerds like us who collect books, and some of them in a really large way, and it's great that you start talking about them and let other people know about those, well, real treasures that are probably on their shelves. Yes, I have a particular friend who's a rare book collector that I'm hoping I can lure out to discuss his collection, because he has some particularly rare manuscripts and tomes that I find think that the world would be fascinated to hear about that he is hidden away and doesn't discuss he's he's not a public person at all he doesn't he's not a writer he doesn't publish he's just a bibliophile like myself who has sought over the world to find the rarest of tombs and the most beautiful selection of rare and obscure texts and there there are a handful of people like this that I'm hoping I can get to talk about them and you know enlighten the world as to the rarities that they hold and the wonderful things that exist outside of the world of the academic institutions and and massive public libraries that there are these still these rare treasures out there hidden amongst the shelves of private collectors well that would be great yeah good luck with that eldred any particular thing you would like to say you would like to add I would like to say to those who are my regular readers that I get an incredible amount of messages from those who are seeking information or guidance or some form of instruction into occult matters. And I am very much a recluse. I am not someone who is accustomed in any way to communicating with a wider audience or having any kind of letters written to me or back and forth. And I apologize to those who may be offended at my lack of response, but I'm just an old man who is unaccustomed to such attention. And while I find pleasure in putting information out into the world and watching people respond to it, I am in no way capable of responding back to your private invitations and your solicitations. At the end of the day, I am simply a hermit, and that may be upsetting to some, but that is, in fact, the way that it is. That's very kind of you to say. I think people do understand that there are lots of hermits in that world around, and it's good that it is that way. The more I thank you for having been available for that short interview today, Eldred, I really appreciate it and I wish you best of luck with the continuation of the Skeptic Log Cultist and all your other projects. Maybe you can keep me posted if something new comes up and I will be happily transferring that to our listeners. 
That would be absolutely wonderful. Thank you for having me on your program today. Thank you, Eldred. This was Eldred Wormwood of the Skeptical Occultist website. Go and have a look. Which brings us to the end of episode two. Wow, this has become a long one. I hope you enjoyed it anyway, and that you will return also to our next episode, due on May 18, and presenting an interview with esotericist and adept of Franz Spartan, William Mistily. Also, for the first time on Thoth Hermes, in episode 3, two book reviews, I will present two exciting new publications to you. Please do subscribe to a free membership on the website, and once again, I would be more than happy to get your feedback. Also, be so kind and share the news about this podcast to your friends. Take care, stay tuned, hear you soon.